quick word on some of the language you're going to hear in this episode. There's usually a restriction on cursing in AA-sponsored meetings and events. But this episode explores young people's AA, a subset of the organization with its own traditions and rules. We had the opportunity to enter a world not many people get to see. We were really touched by the honesty and openness of the people we encountered there and decided to share these interviews with you as we recorded them, curse words and all. If you would prefer a curse-free version, head over to our website, voicesofrecoverypodcast.org. Welcome to Voices of Recovery. I'm your host, Jackie Danziger. Last week, we introduced you to ASIPA, the Oregon State Young People in AA group that recently held their fifth annual conference. Our focus today is on Brennan, the keynote speaker for the opening night of the conference, whose drugs of choice included alcohol, opioids, and heroin. While his story definitely includes some darker elements, including a history of trauma at a young age, Brennan is, for the most part, a pretty lively guy. My name is Brennan. I'm an alcoholic. The thing about Brennan, he knows how to work a crowd. Waipa is not what, what aged me. I started balding in the second grade. And uh, in first grade, I was fucking crushing it, by the way. I had, I had platinum blonde hair, had a rat tail. I wore red bib overalls with a striped shirt underneath. And my favorite band was Europe. Those are all true things. Then second grade happened and things went to shit. And I started smoking crack. That was later. Um, here's, here's, the, here's, the, here's the truth. I, I can be a pretty funny guy. I can look like I'm really comfortable up here, but the truth is I'm very nervous to be standing up here. Um, knowing how to perform and how to tell jokes was something I had to do pretty early on in my family. Otherwise, if you couldn't do that, bad shit happened to you. And so, uh, so this was something that I learned a long, long time ago. And, uh, and uh, it means a lot to me to, to stand up here. Um, in case I blabber on and get wrapped up in a bunch of dumb shit, um, I want to make it really clear that, uh, that uh, Alcoholics Anonymous saved my life. It taught me how to grow up and how to be a man. Young People's AA saved my life, specifically Eugene and Springfield Young People AA. And um, even when I was a dickhead, they saved my life. And uh, there's a lot of people, especially in this section over here, that uh, at some point I will look at and I will start crying because um, those, those people, uh, they loved me when I fucking hated myself. We are not kidding about that language warning. Brennan, in particular, really digs that whole you can swear here thing. That's what's great about speaking at YPAWS. I get to swear a lot and I get to talk about heroin, which is neat, you know? Um, and... Uh, because I love drugs, but alcohol, alcohol was always my primary thing. I love to get drunk. I've always loved drinking. I've washed every drug I've ever done down with alcohol. And uh, because I eventually couldn't get drunk enough, right? I just couldn't get drunk enough to kill the pain, to kill the hatred that was in, inside of me for myself. And that's the thing I'm gonna talk about a lot throughout this, throughout this share tonight is the fact that like, since as young as I can remember, since I was a kid, I've had this head that just hates who I am. I, I, it's gotten better, but I look out in the audience and if somebody checks their cell phone or gets up and goes to the bathroom, I think, he fucking hates me.
you're the worst. <laughs> and like, I've, you know, I've had people think that I'm like cocky or arrogant, like, cause I'm, maybe I'm hanging back and not talking or I'm being kind of, and it's like, the truth is I'm fucking scared of you. Like I'm scared of most things, but I've learned how to adapt. I had to adapt for my work now and I, and uh, I had to adapt for a lot of different reasons. And uh, growing up, my brother and I, as you can imagine, I have an older brother. We were exposed to some not so great shit. And uh, part of my story is that my brother and I, we experienced several years of some pretty bad physical and sexual and verbal abuse. I say that not because I'm blaming my alcoholism or addiction on that stuff. That's, that's not what I'm saying at all. But I will say that my childhood experiences definitely made me really uncomfortable in this body. Like I, I was fucking always weird about being in this thing. Right? I was the kid who like spun around in circles just to get dizzy. I would like take sips of beers. I would like snort pixie sticks. I would like, I mean, you know what I'm talking about? Like I was that fucking kid, you know? Like, like I was like, heal, like helium. I know it didn't even do anything to you, but I was like, it's doing something, I can hear it, you know? And like, and I'd be like freaking out. Brennan is a gifted storyteller and he knows how to bring the house down. After hearing him speak on stage, we knew we wanted to hear more. We had a chance to sit down with him to learn about his story in more depth. You know, one of the things that was really different about my childhood that oftentimes is sometimes surprising for people to hear is that my mom was a nurse and my dad was a surgeon and they were both drug addicts and alcoholics. And so that was a really interesting experience for me because my image of drug addiction and alcoholism as a kid was not the, the guy passed out by the dumpster. It wasn't the uh, woman who smelled getting, you know, those five gallons of the cheapest vodka that she can get at the liquor store with that look of shame on her face. Uh, my image of drug addiction and alcoholism were successful people. My parents used to have these parties and we have like these crazy old videotapes of these parties where it would, it was all the people they worked with. It was, it was, it was sheriffs and paramedics and anesthesiologists and nurse practitioners, the head of the hospital, all wearing togas, all doing cocaine. Cause this was in the eighties when you could get packaged cocaine, like to uh, cauterize nosebleeds and just do all this different kind of stuff. And, and they're just blowing cocaine and doing LSD. I mean, I, I, I remember one video tape that I was watching a few months ago. It's my father. He's videotaping everybody like checking in about what their acid trip was like the night before. And they're all talking about this, this guy, so-and-so who the last time they saw him, he was butt naked riding his horse off at like four in the morning. That guy was the head administrator of the hospital in the Grand Oregon. This is the kind of stuff that I saw growing up. These were not losers. These were not derelicts. These were successful people. And it was, it looked fun. It looked scary and it looked crazy, but it also looked really fun. There's a dangerous assumption that failure and poverty are the only indicators that substance abuse has progressed into addiction. But success and wealth are not signs of stability. Growing up, Brennan saw a different kind of addiction, one where the consequences were scary and very real, but also well-hidden. You know, I didn't get to even talk about this last night in my share, but the first time technically I ever did drugs was at two years old. I got into some pot brownies that also had mushrooms in them and I had to be raced to the hospital. And uh, there was like this container with the Mr. Yuck sticker on it. I don't know if, if people are familiar with yeah, that. It's, of yeah, it's, yeah, it's the green sticker. Yeah. The guy's got his tongue out. And, uh, but they just looked like chocolate brownies to me. So I ate one of those fantastic brownies and I was rushed to the hospital and, and that's just kind of what it was like for me. So what I, just to hear the details of that, what, 
How'd your parents get out of that situation of having to bring a two-year-old to the hospital? They were the hospital. They were the hospital. It was a chaotic household. Lacking reliable authority figures or a clear sense of safety, the instability took its toll. By the time he was 12, he was more insecure than ever, harboring a deep hurt and sense of unease in his own skin. Desperate to shut these feelings out, he discovered far too young that alcohol was a way to do that. The first time I ever really got drunk, the first time I ever drank to get in inebriated was when I was 12 years old. And uh, I was in my brother's VW van, and uh, we drove out to the middle of the cherry orchards, and we're smoking weed, we're drinking. He's got Jimi Hendrix playing. And I, I swear, I literally went from this, like, frumpy 12-year-old kid who wore, like, triple XL Garfield shirts and, like, a beaded cross necklace that I made <laughs> to thinking I was the fucking raddest dude ever. And the thing is, I believe that we get addicted to things because they, it fucking works, right? It works. It did something for me that nothing else ever did for me. It made me feel okay in my body. It made me feel like I could freaking breathe. I looked in the mirror and I didn't want to fucking die anymore. I used to be a kid that had such terrible dreams and flashbacks and I'd think about suicide at eight, nine, 10, 11 years old. I just hated who I was. And suddenly I'm literally like, hey, all right, what's up girl? <laughs> like, not really, I never did that, but I was. <laughs> These guys are like, you've never done that, ever. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I haven't. But, um, but I, I was, I was just like, I was like this, this, this grizzled drunk that drank and used alone, man. And like, I liked it. My mom was an alcoholic, like I said. She would stroll out into the kitchen when I'd have friends over and she'd usually be blackout or butt naked, literally, you know, which is like pouring herself a big glass of Franzia Sunset Blush. <laughs> which I drank a ton of growing up. And it's, uh, it's, 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 really, it's, it's really gross. And, um, but uh, I, 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 had, I, I, literally, I literally had no identity, you guys. So when I, when I started drinking, this was a big fucking deal for me. This was a big deal for me. So I created this whole alter ego, right? Um, I started really like trumping up like my Irish ancestry. I do have Irish ancestry, but I really started building this story where these guys know too. I was still doing this shit when I got sober, up until like two weeks ago. And uh, and uh, and uh, and I was like, oh, I'm Irish, and you know what that means? We're troubled, and we're fucking, you know, destined for suffering. And I would read Yeats, and like I'd be like, oh, and I got like a shamrock tattoo and several others, and. Uh, and, uh, and I was like, that's who I am. This is what I do. I drink, I get fucked up. And, and, uh, and my friends would be like, you drink too much. We're worried about you. And I'd be like, stay off me, man. It's my destiny, you know? And like, <laughs> and, uh, and, I'm, and, and, and like humor is something that I use a lot because uh, if, I, if I'm too serious about looking at my life, it's just pretty damn sad, you know what I mean? Because the truth, the, the, the truth is, I was a fucking daily drinker in high school. I was a mess. Teachers disliked me. My family didn't want anything to do with me. I still hated myself. It's just I got so loaded that I didn't think about how much I hated myself so much. So it, it wasn't even fucking helping at all at that point. You will hear people in recovery say, alcohol and drugs were my solution, not my problem. When you take away the substance, the pain comes rushing back. But when you're still drinking, it feels like the alcohol is working. And if you are a fast-talking charmer like Brennan, the illusion of being well-adjusted can keep a person in active addiction for years. 
I had this amazing grandfather who used to always say, Brennan, we're Irish. You know what that means. You can ask us a question and we'll give you a 20 minute answer and we won't tell you a goddamn thing. And so, uh, so what's the difference between, you know, telling stories and telling jokes and lying? It's, it's a pretty thin line, to be honest with you. Uh, and when I was a kid, if you were able to tell a story and if you were able to say something entertaining and funny, it could really be the difference between some not so great things happening to you that day. And there were a lot of times where I was successfully able to control the mood of my house. Ah, oh, those were big victories, right? Like when I could keep the tone mellow and maybe even make my dad laugh or some of the other people laugh, that usually meant the night was going to go a lot better for me. But um, unfortunately, there was many nights where that didn't happen. But that didn't keep me from from not trying. I think there's something that's in people's heads that childhood trauma always then leads to a kid that's going to be introverted and not be able to express themselves. And I think it's interesting if you can just talk a little bit more about how your early trauma actually led you to be a very funny, articulate person. Well, so it didn't lead me to be that, to be honest with you. Um, I was an introverted, awkward, traumatized kid totally stereotypically. Um, for the first part of my childhood, uh, I stuttered. For example, I had to see a speech coach. My family, uh, I don't remember this. I don't remember a large part of my childhood, which as a mental health professional now who works with trauma, uh, the number one symptom of trauma is amnesia, uh, amnesia around the event. So usually when I'm working with trauma survivors, they won't remember seven, eight, nine years of their early childhood. And that's kind of my story. And, um, and so apparently my family told me I literally didn't say a word for a year. And then suddenly I started talking and I could not talk without a pretty horrendous stutter. And I was made fun of all the time. So kids would always do the porky pig thing. Plus I'm a bit of a huskier man. So it was a dual threat there. And so I was picked on pretty relentlessly. And so I just became kind of awkward. And, um, and being the class clown was something I started to adapt, but it was also kind of dangerous for me to be seen because if people laughed at me um, at my jokes, usually was a pretty thin line before they started just you know laughing at me further by making fun of me. So, so I, I was kind of the kind of the poster boy of trauma and the poster boy of of what trauma often does to people until I found alcohol and drugs. You know, if if I would have smoked weed and drank at 12 years old, and if it would have made me more awkward, if it would have made me feel more insecure, if it would have made me stutter even more significantly, I wouldn't have kept doing it. But in that moment, it went me. It took me from being the most frumpy, awkward kid into being the coolest kid that you ever met, and that was huge because I, I I hated myself. I hated myself, and and alcohol and drugs didn't make didn't stop me from hating myself. It just made me not think about it as much. And so suddenly there I was. I, I had arrived, like it talks about in 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 the big book. I had arrived. Um, I was the guy who told funny jokes. My mom struggled with her own alcoholism and she worked a lot. So I was the guy that hosted parties and sold weed. And suddenly I went from the guy that everybody made fun of to the guy whose phone rang off the hook and everybody wanted to come to my parties and everybody wanted to buy my drugs. Selling drugs for me was amazing, right? I never had, I never had any power. Nobody ever gave a shit about me. I was the kid that people fucking bullied and people talked shit to. And now suddenly my phone's blown up. And I'm like, shut the fuck up, man. You ain't coming over. You know, like my room's full. You can't come over. I don't like you, you know, and I'm like, and uh, and that I'd never had that experience before And I'd never had power and like my mom was an alcoholic so she worked she worked all the time and I and I was like the cool kid, right? I was the kid ever we all had these friends the mom who worked or the parents who were alcoholics So you partied I was the party house when you're the party house you become the coolest kid by default It doesn't even fucking matter. You know what I mean? 
doesn't even, you can suck and you're like, yeah, you're cool now. You have a house we can do drugs in. And like, and that was my house. And at the, and at the, and at the, and at the ripe age of 15 years old, uh, I, got, I got charged with two felony charges of delivery of a controlled substance for weed. And let me tell you, it's, I'm 15 at this time and I've only been drinking at that time for three years and I shit you not, I'm already a fucking grizzled drunk by this time. What was it like having that experience of going from being the awkward kid to the popular kid? Like I imagine it's almost like when, um, you know, you see child stars that get famous too quickly and there's just like no way to cope with it. How, how did you deal with that transition of your persona and your role in your school changing so significantly so fast? Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting question. Nobody ever has asked me that question before, and it was weird. Um, I was not a, a super cool guy, and suddenly, uh, you know, I was homecoming king. I was a varsity football player, but uh, but it was weird, and I really didn't know know how to deal with it. What it what it did was it fed this different image of myself. It fed this different ego. Again, that's, I was joking earlier about the whole, you know, ego and, and image about being this like Irish drinker, you know, this Irish drinker, fighter, football player, whatever it was, uh, that just became worse and worse and worse. And I just, essentially I lost myself because I was so happy that people were giving me attention that I basically was just a chameleon. I turned into whatever they wanted me to be. And, uh, and, and I remember when I, I got in a lot of trouble as a teenager, uh, this probation officer told me that I needed to quit drinking. You know, he said, hey, if you if you get caught again, I had like 12 minor possessions of alcohol before I was 18. I was a convicted felon by the time I was 15 for selling weed. Uh, he he looked at me and said, man, if you don't quit drinking, you're going to you're going to like spend time, like real time in a juvenile detention center. And he might as well have said, Brennan, you need to quit breathing. You need to quit breathing, eating and drinking water. Um because that's what that stuff was to me. I mean, it was my lifeblood. It was my soul. It was my personality. It was my humor. It was my voice. And I was absolutely terrified to let it go. By the time he finished high school, Brennan had built up quite the list of offenses. He may have been homecoming king, but he also totaled five cars while driving drunk, was a convicted felon by 15 for selling weed, and had 12 charges for minor possession of alcohol by 18. His rap sheet, however, didn't keep him from heading off to college once he graduated high school. I went to Southern Oregon University. It was a great college, and I really had a good time. And for the first time, I experienced positive self-esteem. Like, in my high school, I was the piece of shit. I was the drug dealer. I was the asshole. I was the guy that nobody wanted their kids to hang out with. And when I got into college, like, I found out I was actually kind of smart. I found out, actually, when I didn't show up to school at 8.30 in the morning drunk, I actually was could like put together some pretty reasonable sentences and like get, get good grades and like do all this kind of stuff. And, um, but something remained. Brennan drank less in college than he did in high school, but when he did drink, it was to excess. Hiding beers in bushes in case the party ran out and usually ending his binge in a blackout. College started getting worse and worse and I was becoming a pretty, pretty nasty alcoholic my senior year. I wanted to get into graduate school, like I said, and somehow, some way, I don't know how I did this, but as an alcoholic or a drug addict, I, I was president listed most terms. I graduated with honors and I got accepted to graduate school, the graduate school that I wanted to go to. And um, right shortly after I got accepted to graduate school, I went over to my dad's house. He said he needed to talk to me about something. And I came over there and he was like fucking falling over and he was wearing an adult diaper and he was like looking really shitty. And he told me, Brennan, I'm, I'm addicted to opiates and I'm going, I'm going to treatment tomorrow. 
And I was like, what the fuck? You know, and I was like, this is crazy. And my dad and I, we always had a pretty tumultuous relationship, but we had reconnected when I got into college. He ended up moving to Ashland at some point. And um, so the first thing I did was, uh, while he was laying on the couch, I, I went into his uh, bedroom and I found those opiates. And like I said, he was a surgeon, so he had this bag. There's literally probably 70 prescribed bottles of pills in that bag. Uh, prescribed to my dead grandfather, my former stepmom, and then several prescribed to me. And I was like, well, these are mine. You know, these, are mine. These, these, these have my, my name on them, so I'm gonna take them, you know? And, uh, and that's what I did. I mean, and I just, I just wanna illustrate that to you, the fucking insanity of that, right? My dad is wearing an adult diaper. He's a fucking surgeon. And he's telling me his, he's falling over. He looked, he looked, I was horrified. And then I'm like, I gotta get some of that. You know, I gotta get some of that stuff that he's got. You know, I gotta, I gotta get, I gotta get my hands on that. There I was looking at my dad. His life was a complete mess. I mean, he looked terrible. I mean, he looked like he was 93 years old and he was in his early 50s and was just, just a really fit guy and a really competent guy. And yeah, I was like, oh yeah, I want to do these drugs. And that's the insanity of addiction. That's the insanity of my addiction. And that was the arrogance of my addiction. Like that's a big piece that, that I want to make sure I touch on about, you know, in consideration of being here at Ossipaw. And one of the things about young people's AA and young people's recovery and why it's so damn difficult is because when you're 21 years old, it's just not going to happen to you. It's not going to be you, right? It's going to be your friend Chad or your friend Kelly or whoever it is, right? Um, they're the ones that are screw-ups, not you. You're not going to be the one. So there I was looking at my future, literally, because that's really what I foresee my dad as. My dad... And when he's in his addiction, is so reflective of me. He's arrogant. He's egotistical. He's mean. He's uh, so selfish and self-pitying. And uh, and that is that that is me. That's me and my addiction too. But I couldn't see that. I could not see that. You know, I was. I was the guy who was traveling around and studying in Europe and, and, and got into the graduate school of my choice and graduated summa cum laude and all this kind of stuff. I had a million reasons to tell you why I did not have a problem. So when I saw those pills, I damn near felt entitled to them, right? Just like my dad justified, you know, and he would tell me this stuff. He would say, you know, I work all day and I work these long hours and I save people's lives. Like I need something to cut the tension. And Right away, as soon as I started taking those drugs, same thing. You know, I got a lot of pressure. Graduate school's coming. My relationship's a mess. Like, I got to keep my head in the game. I mean, I just, I had a million reasons why I deserved to get loaded. I had a million reasons why I deserved uh, 10 times the amount of endorphins that any human being should have in their body every minute of their waking day. By all accounts, Brennan had a lot going for him. He had traveled the world and conquered academia. He had moved to Seattle, a bustling, vibrant city filled with opportunities for a smart guy like him. But his accomplishments did not undo the damage from his early trauma. And beneath the surface, his reliance on drugs and alcohol was progressing. One day after another terrible fight with this girl, I'm driving downtown Seattle, and, and then the last thing I remember was turning my car um, off the road and I drove myself into a telephone pole at about 60 miles per hour in downtown Seattle and I broke my neck and I broke my wrist, compound fractured my wrist, several ribs, shattered my sternum, dislocated my knee, I was in a coma for a few days. And um, when I woke up from, from that coma, 
um, you would have thought that my first question would have been like, am I going to be able to walk again? Because they didn't know if I was going to walk. Uh, I didn't ask that. I didn't give a shit. Uh, my first question was, What's, what are these tubes in? What, what is this? What are you giving me? I said, Dilaudid. And I said, well, how often? They said, every four minutes you can push this button. I said, you better make that three. I remember you speaking about your reaction about looking for the drugs, but did you have to deal with, with fielding questions about your, your mental health and about what your intentions were? So I didn't remember why I, I didn't have a lot of memory leading up to the car accident. I still don't have a lot of memory of those couple days, except I started getting some flashes and uh, I was pretty suicidal leading up to it. And I remember that I got into a really big fight with a, with a, with a woman that I was in a very, very toxic relationship to. So, um, there had been many times before where I'd been driving along and I had thought about just driving off a bridge, driving into something and kind of some of my last memories and they're pretty fuzzy are me crying, screaming and driving really fast. So I don't know. Um, um, can I, can I tell you with 110% that, that that's exactly what was happening? But, um, unfortunately in my drug addiction and my alcoholism, I attempted suicide, um, a couple other times. So it was a real part of my story. I really, really wanted to die. And I didn't just want to die. So I wanted people off my back too. That's the thing I want to say sometimes in addiction. Uh, and when you're young too, when you depend so much on other people's finances and other people's support, suicide and threatening suicide was a really great way to get people to do what I wanted them to do. And a great way to get people to give me money and, and, and give me space. But I also do know for 100% fact that I wanted to die. I got to a place in my life where I wasn't afraid of death, uh, but I was really afraid of having a shitty existence. Mm. And my existence was getting really bad. And I, it got to a place for me where every waking moment I felt insane. Like it felt like my head was swelling larger than my brain could contain, larger than my skull could contain. Like my thoughts were just so dark and negative and awful. And I just didn't want to go on. So while that time, I didn't get a lot of those questions because I think they were just happy I was alive. But I did bounce in and out of several psych hospitals. Um, and uh, that's why I like being an Aussie Paw. You know, last night I got to tell my story and sitting 10 feet from me were all these beautiful people, all these beautiful young people that used to come visit me in psych hospitals, used to come take me food and take me magazines. And they put up with my crazy. They'd be like, how are you feeling today, Brennan? And I'd be like, I'm feeling really good. You know, I think I'm gonna get my doctorate when I get out of here, you know? And they'd be like, okay, man, that sounds like a great plan. Or they'd be like, so what are you thinking? I'd be like, I think I'm gonna go to New Zealand and backpack. And they'd be like, okay, buddy, like thumbs up. And they just put up with me, you know what I mean? They put up with me and, and, and they just loved me. And so, so yeah, I know I kind of bounce around a little bit on that, but it's, it's, uh, you know, the mental health stuff definitely did become a part of my story, but at that time it, it, it wasn't at that time. It was just the addiction piece. And so, you know, when I found myself going to treatment, I went that first time because, uh, because I had no other choice and I, and I treated it with about as much, uh, responsibility as somebody would, who was being forced to do most things. Around this time, after his first attempt at treatment, Brennan was going through the motions of a regimen of care, but he continued to slide deeper into depression. He was still functioning, sort of, but he was losing ground to his demons and his addictions with each passing day. I was a season ticket holder for the Seahawks. I finally was able to walk and I was like, I'm going to the season opener. And I get on an Amtrak train, some friends are gonna meet me and I wear a gorilla suit to every Seahawks game. 
And, um, and I'm, so I'm in this gorilla suit and I'm taking methadone because I've seen this wacky pain management doctor and all this stuff and I'm taking Xana, I'm taking all these pills, I'm trying to tip the bartender on the train with methadone. He's like, well, what the fuck is wrong with you, man? <laughs> and, um, and I literally get off the train in Seattle and my friends are there and I collapse in my friend's arm and arms and I overdosed. And after that, um, I woke up in the hospital and then I went to my friend's, my friend took me over his house and he was going to dump my pills in the toilet and he called my mom and I was going to treatment. And this was like my best friend in the whole world and I fucking punched him right in the face. Brennan begrudgingly checked into Serenity Lane and ended up in the long-term residential program, Excel. The benefits outweighed his initial resentment. One of the reasons why Excel was, was so powerful for me was because I had never had a, fa uh, a family like the one I created there. You know, I mean, my, my mom was a, a wonderful mom, especially considering her battle with alcoholism. But my brother was seven years older than me. He was struggling with his own addiction. So in many ways, it was just me in my home. It was me, my Ninja Turtles, my imaginary friend, and uh, and Dunkaroos. You know, just Dunkaroos are a delicious snack, uh, whereas graham cracker, kangaroos, and frosting, for those of you who don't know, <laughs> listening. Uh, but they are fantastic, and I would eat lots of them throughout the day. And uh, those were my friends. And so I went to Excel, and I was terrified. And it was this therapeutic community that just wouldn't let me do the stuff I wanted to do. And uh, I had two really incredible counselors, uh, Doug Smith and Cami Prey. Um, and Doug Smith is still part of Serenity Lane now, and he's he's a he's a dear dear friend of mine that. It's kind of funny whenever I talk about him, it always makes me miss him and wish I saw him a little bit more. But he's somebody that is in a list of about 20 or so people that uh, I wouldn't be alive without. You know, looking out at the audience that I was speaking to last night, uh, six of those individuals that were out there were in my Excel group. There was a group of about 12 of us that were kind of there for a real long bulk of time together. And I think like nine of us are still sober with like a pretty good amount of time. Brennan's Excel group was particularly tight-knit, partially because 70% of them were also young men. In fact, it was in this group that he had his first exposure to YPOC culture. Alcoholics Anonymous just showed up for me, man. Like, these guys just showed up for me. And that's when I got introduced in the Young People's AA, like really introduced in the Young People's AA. And because I was forced to stay there, I didn't have a choice. And the shit was really cool, man. Like they was always doing like these barbecues. But but here's the stuff that was really amazing to me. I saw young people in AA and they weren't fucking miserable. They were happy. They were having fun. And when I walked into young people's meetings, man, I thought y'all were the coolest fucking people ever, man. You know, I got people who are sitting over there now that if I look at too long, I'm gonna start crying. I can feel the shit flowing through me because I mean, I love these people so much. I love him so much and I would do anything for him because like these guys drove me around to meetings and they told me I was a good person and they, um, you know, they showed up for like six month anniversaries and, and, um, and they just showed up and I didn't have a lot of people that had shown up like that, like truly and with love and like, and, uh, and they were having fun. Brennan had taken the first steps on his path to recovery. He had made some strong connections with sober people and just started to address some of the damage from his trauma. But he wasn't quite done with his addiction, or his addiction wasn't quite done with him. Either way, he had a slip, as people in recovery call it, or more accurately, a stumble. 
Unfortunately, uh, I did not stay sober after my experience in Excel. Um, I was working as a counselor with kids and I was walking on a trail and the trail gave away. And I fell about six feet and compound fractured my ankle. Brennan's injury was in a remote area. Help eventually arrived and he was airlifted to a hospital many miles away. And just like that, he was back in the thick of his addiction. I wish I had a really wonderful like story about coming through that, but I, di I didn't come through it. You know, um, they gave me fentanyl on top of that mountain to take me down, and I immediately was like, "What are they going to get me when I get to the hospital? Like, it's going to be so good." And I couldn't, I couldn't help it. I'd only been sober about six months, and I was on like step seven, and there was all these complications. I ended up getting staph infection, all this stuff. But that's that's not an excuse. What started happening was I started taking taxis behind people's backs to other doctors so I could get more drugs. Um, I had beautiful people that were administering drugs for me. They'd, they'd come give them to me and then I'd just cheek them and build it up for a massive dose later. And, um, and I would lie to them about it. And I was high at my Oxford house um, and I just felt this fucking horrific shame. You know, I, I, I felt this horrific shame. I'll never forget when one time I was at a restaurant with my mom and I just said, fuck it. You know, I said, fuck it. And I looked at her and I said, I'm ordering a beer and you can't stop me. And that proceeded a real long downward spiral where I got into a lot of legal trouble. And that's when I went to those nine psych wards. I started getting into heroin. It's true what they say that there's nothing worse than a, a belly full of beer and a head full of AA because suddenly I had all this love that Excel and these friends and this family that I created in recovery all this wisdom that they'd given me, all this love that they'd given me, I had to block that out now. So things got really dark and it got really scary. And uh, I went back out. I was only out for about nine months and it was so dark and so bleak. Two suicide attempts on top of all that stuff I just named. After I got in trouble, I had the opportunity to go to treatment again. And it had become very clear that I had a lot of other issues that were fueling my alcoholism and addiction. Bill Wilson talks about this as well. He says, alcohol is but a symptom. and We have to get down to the causes and conditions. I mean, Bill Wilson himself was a trauma survivor. And so I went to an amazing trauma resolution and addiction treatment program in Florida called The Refuge. That's when I looked at the childhood sexual trauma stuff. That's when I looked at uh, the shame and the guilt and the grief and the pain that I had been carrying around with me my entire life, the horrible way that I saw myself because of some things that had happened to me. And it really is true that things sometimes just happen perfectly, even when it feels so painfully imperfect. Do you feel like you could have maintained sobriety if you never dealt with your trauma? I do not feel like I could have maintained sobriety if I hadn't dealt with my trauma. And I don't want that to come across as a, a an urgent alert to anyone who hasn't done their trauma work or who is listening and scared to do their trauma work. But, uh, you know, one of the things I joked about last night at the Ossipah conference was, you know, I speak professionally too at a lot of professional conferences and I, and, and I, and I speak a lot in A meetings and, 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 um, and I, you know, I, I was the main speaker at Ossipah last night and I meant it when I, when I told people that, uh, you know, when I look around that audience, cause people will find me very funny and witty and, and charming. And that's really great. I don't find myself that way. Oftentimes I have this voice in my head that says they hate you, you know? These are the kind of things that my head will automatically think because that is the kind of narrative that I've had for a really, really, really long time. And I would love to tell you that going to trauma treatment, continuing to do my trauma work and being sober for almost nine years has made that voice go away. It hasn't, but it's made other voices come in, voices of love, voices of self-respect. It's brought in a healthy doubt of my doubts of self. And that's really what it's done. And so... 
I can't imagine how I'd be sober. And if I was sober, I just don't think I'd be very happy. Um, you know, and that, and, and that was kind of the same thing too. I saw my dad struggle with as well. I think my dad tried getting sober without facing his past, without facing his demons. And my dad really didn't want to do the work on himself. He would have a little bit of time sober, but then he wanted that ambient to sleep. He wanted that Suboxone for craving, or he wanted that Klonopin for anxiety. He wanted something else to make his insides feel calm. And that's one of the greatest gifts that, that doing the trauma work as well as being in recovery has given me, is that I've come to see that I'm capable of doing that. You know, I'm capable of, of taking care of myself and loving myself, and I don't need something else to do that. Having trauma doesn't automatically make you an addict. And being an addict doesn't automatically mean you have a history of trauma. Not all addicts need to do trauma work. But for Brennan, Dealing with that history became the key to not only maintain his sobriety, but learn how to help others maintain theirs. I've always wanted to be a mental health counselor, always. When I was seven or eight years old, I was this really traumatized kid who was having flashbacks and nightmares, and I would have these hives, and nobody knew what to do with me. And so I, was, I saw this child psychologist named Dr. Larry Lyons, and he would give me a Sprite and a fun-sized candy bar when I'd come see him. And above all else, he looked at me with these eyes, these true eyes of compassion and love, and he made me feel welcome. And there wasn't many male figures in my life that made me feel that way. And I didn't know what exactly he did. I didn't know what a psychologist was, but I knew I wanted to, to be a psychologist. I wanted to be a therapist. And I started training with the founder of that program, The Refuge. Her name is Judy Crane, amazing trauma therapist and author and trauma professional revered around the world. And uh, she offered me a job and I ended up moving out to Florida and, and starting a young men's program for childhood sex abuse survivors who struggle with addiction and and uh, that became my life's work and my life's passion. And so, so all that stuff just kind of fell into place exactly the way it needed to. And I, and I, and I needed, I was one of those guys that needed to have the, the, the crap beat out of me a little bit. I needed to learn that my way wouldn't work. And, uh, and every bit of my journey was necessary. In his speech, Brennan spoke about his career and the winding journey to starting his own counseling practice. And, uh, and that's another thing. I know there's a lot of people in this room who are felons. Uh, I am currently a licensed professional counselor in both the state of Oregon and Washington, um, certified alcohol and drug counselor. Yeah, I was a felon and I had to jump through a lot of hoops. I had to jump through a lot of hoops and I had to keep going through red tape and keep going through red tape. And Alcoholics Anonymous kept telling me how to do that, kept showing me how to do that. And it kept reminding me that I was the fucking asshole that got myself into this situation. And I'd be like, my probation officer's a dick. The state of Oregon's a dick. They'd be like, you're a dick. <laughs> my friends would be like, you're a dick, actually. You're also not as Irish as you think you are. <laughs> Brennan fell in love with a wonderful woman who was also sober, and they eventually moved to Florida so he could train as a trauma counselor at the refuge. They got married in a beautiful beach ceremony surrounded by friends, and finally, it seemed like all the things were happening for Brennan. Love, career, a full, sober life. And that's when the bottom fell out. Here's Brennan talking about it in his speech. And then year five of sobriety happened. <laughs> Out of nowhere, um, one night my wife told me that she wanted a divorce. Uh, you know, totally fucking blindsided me. I fucking adored this woman. And I didn't see it coming. 
it was like somebody reached in and ripped my fucking heart out of my chest. First thought I had was, I'm gonna go get a drink. And I've never had an experience like this, you guys. But it was followed up by this, I don't know what it was, you guys, but it was, I fucking heard something. I heard something, and I heard something just say, no, you're not. No, you're not. That'll make things so much worse. It's exactly how I heard it. And I felt it, and I believed it, and I said, okay, I'm not gonna have a drink. And I woke up, and I went to a meeting in Portland. I was living in Portland at the time. I went to a 7 a.m. meeting at the Paula Center. I was miserable, and I was this close to sharing about how my wife just told me she wanted a divorce and fucking my life sucks and I thought I was sober and I've done all this shit and I help all these men and I fucking dedicated my life to the, to, the, to the field of counseling and then this guy shared right before me and told me I just found out I have three more months to live. I'm dying and he was at a fucking AA meeting, you know? I hear so many people, this program has shown me so many people that walk through so many more difficult things than I've ever faced. And I've walked through some difficult things that y'all have never faced. But there this fucking guy was at an AA meeting, spreading the message. And I said, all right, I know what to do. And I knew exactly what to do. I went to my mom's house for two days and ate ice cream. <laughs> and talked on the phone for eight hours. And then I went back to Eugene. I went back to Eugene and um, my, one of my best friends in the whole world, he's like a brother to me. He said, why don't you just come stay with me? And he had this spare bedroom that was mostly storage. And I go in there and he had it all cleared out. And he had a bed made for me. And uh, he looked at me and he said, stay here as long as you want. And I mean, I fucking knew that he meant it. You know, I knew that he fucking meant it. Brennan had been dealt a rough hand. Even at five years sober, he felt like a newcomer again. But he reconnected with the fellowship he had found in Excel and threw himself into service. I started working with guys again. I started working with young people again. I made my home group this young people's men's AA meeting. And I started meeting all these other amazing new young men that I had never fucking known before and getting closer with other young men. And like, and Alcoholics Anonymous was building me back up. And I was working with a man who talked to me about the fact that sometimes we get so broken down by life that our God, our higher power, gives us a really rare opportunity to put ourselves back together the way that we want to. And I remember I was talking to a friend and I told him how ashamed I was and I can't believe I'm getting a divorce and this is the worst thing. And just like my parents, I said that to, to her. I said, I'm just like my parents. And she said, what if you have a chance to do something your parents truly never did? My parents used marriage and sex as a currency, lots of divorces, step-parents. She said, what if you walked through a divorce with love and integrity? What if you walked through divorce with kindness? And that's what I did. My ex-wife and I, we met at the courthouse and we held hands and we fucking cried with no lawyers. We did not yell at each other. We did not scream at each other. She and I met for a cigar together about four months ago, and we cried. We sat down at the cigar lounge, and you two's with or without you came on, and we both just started crying and laughing. And I was like, this is fucked up. Because I'm, I'm super Irish. And, uh, and, uh, How did you feel being up there just like, killing. I mean, people were laughing so much and just so with you and nodding their heads. How, how does that feel? Does it, does it come in as pleasure or is it even then you're, you're second guessing it? And how, how has this weekend been? Every time I see you, people are lining up to tell you how much you speaking meant to them. Well, that's really nice to hear. Even as you say that, I mean, I feel like emotions behind my eyes and things like that. Cause I guess ultimately I just remember being that little kid sitting in that child psychologist's office and just wanting to help people. And I've always wanted to help people. Like even when I was getting loaded 
in graduate school, I just wanted to help people. And I was just hoping that if I just got my master's degree and then just got my licensure and then just got a private practice, then then maybe like all that wonderful stuff that you just said would happen to me and then I wouldn't need to drink and I wouldn't need to use drugs. And, um, and, um, and of course, you know, that didn't happen. I needed to be sober for anything good to come. And I was very nervous leading up to last night. I was nervous for a whole week. And uh, and people are always like so surprised when they hear that because I do speak professionally. I do speak in large professional conferences. And so people just assume that I must just stand up there with just this great confidence and this great, just great, you know, like courage. And I don't. But um, when I get up in situations like that, it's hard for it not to feel a little bit like when I was that kid having to perform, mm -hmm. like just perform, just pull it off. If you do well, this will happen or this won't happen. Um, I definitely build with the audience and there definitely becomes a bit of a flow. So there was, I will admit, there was a point last night where I were probably probably way later than people would think where I realized like, Oh, you've got them. Like this is your rolling and this is great and just keep it up. Um, but that probably wasn't until about 40 minutes in. So, so for the most part, I'm just kind of in a blackout. And that year there was a doozy. My grandfather died. Um, he was like a father to me. He died two weeks before my wife told me she wanted to divorce. And in that same year, my dad was starting to get really bad. He lost his medical license several years back. I mean, I can't believe it took him that long, but he, he started getting, he got, he got wet brain. So he started hallucinating. He would call me up and ask me where I'd gone. And I'd be like, what are you talking? I hadn't seen you in months, you know? And so I was camping with a bunch of my sober friends and he was in the hospital. He had fallen so much that he had numerous spinal fractures and he was in a hospital and I didn't know if I should go see him. And, and my friends encouraged me to go see him and, and uh, or actually they encouraged me to do what felt right, which was really fucking cool. I went and saw him and uh, held his hand and I talked to him. He looked at me and said, man, I was a pretty lousy dad. And I, looked at him and said, you know what? Yeah, you weren't great. You weren't great. <laughs> but I love you, man. I just want you not to be fucking miserable, you know? He had some pills in his, in his jean pockets and his jeans were hanging over this chair and he was in this like heavy back brace and they found him two days later dead. He, was, he had sat up trying to get to his jeans to get to those pills and he had a, a, a hemorrhage and uh, went, to, went to his brain and he died. Um, and that was fucked, that was fucking hard. You know, my dad never got to, uh, my dad never got to have this kind of life, um, that Alcoholics Anonymous has given me. And that's something that again, another friend told me was that, uh, you know, that reframing that happens in this program, he said, man, what if your dad gave you the greatest gift that any dad can ever give someone to show you the kind of man that you don't want to be, show you the kind of man that you don't want to turn into. And I got to show up to his funeral and I got to fucking cry and I got to scream and I got to wail and I got to not drink. And I went to an AA meeting that same day too. I go to lots of AA meetings. That's definitely a big part of my program. One of the beautiful things that happened because of those experiences um, was that I, I realized how fucking powerful this program about Alcoholics Anonymous is. I mean, I really, really, really came to believe that. thing I would say to anyone who doesn't know why Pa is out there is that it is and it's scary and why Pa used to scare me young people's Alcoholics Anonymous meetings used to scare me because I was one of those guys that said well I like the old people 
But the thing about the old people was I could just fade into the background. I could fade into black. I didn't have to actually integrate. I didn't actually have to communicate. I could just be the young, the young buck that just sat there and didn't say anything. But young people meant I had to integrate. Young people asked me to go to the dances and go to the barbecues and they engaged me. And so I had to step out of my comfort zone. And that is the epitome of what recovery is about, is stepping out of your comfort zone and realizing that you can tolerate it when you do. That's what trauma works about too, is realizing that you are stronger more capable than you actually think that you are. So what I would say to people is take a risk. Find one other person to go to a camp out, a barbecue, a, a dodgeball tournament, one of these large conferences, and just take a risk and learn how to have fun. And I believe as a young person, you are not gonna stay sober if you don't find a way to have fun. The life that Alcoholics Anonymous has given me is truly, is truly one that I could, could not imagine. To be a part of men and women like the men and women that I have in my life today that love me the way that they love me and that I love them the way that I love them, I didn't know as a kid that there was love like that. I didn't know as a kid that you could care so deeply for another human being. And Alcoholics Anonymous gave me that. And thank you, Young People's AA. Really grateful to be speaking here tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Join us next week when we'll continue our series on young people in AA. Voices of Recovery was created by Monique and Jackie Danziger and is produced by Serenity Lane Drug and Alcohol Treatment Centers. Writing and production assistance by Monique Danziger. James Tyson is our production coordinator and script supervisor. Our show is edited by me, Jackie Danziger. Our theme song and much of the music in this episode was composed by Sammy Gallo with additional tracks by Seaside Audio. If you want to hear more audio from ASIPA and related conferences, look for Terry by Googling TMAR Tapes. That's T-M-A-R Tapes. And check out his website or Facebook page. Thank you to the ASIPA committee who took a group conscience and agreed to let us participate in their event. If you want to get more involved with the Voices of Recovery community, find us on Facebook and like our page. If you want to help others discover our show, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review.